Hi, welcome to our podcast. To learn more about Liverpool One Church, join us live, give financially and to get involved, head to liverpoolonechurch.com. We believe God wants to do great things in and through your life today. Enjoy this message. Lights, camera, action. Get ready, get ready, get ready. The people are coming. Get the chair set. Make sure the room is clean. Test the sound. Fix the mics. Create the moment. Write the message. Get the shot. Upload the footage. Make sure the people are talking about the next big event. But wait. Slow down. Rewind. (laughs) What am I doing again? Why am I here? Why am I so focused on this, the gathering, the church? Because who is this all about? It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about him. It's always been about him. Just him. Just Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. The one who stood in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego so that the flame would never harm them. The one who stood by me when I was at death's door. When I was in the storm, when my heart was broken and I didn't know when and where I would see my joy again. When my feet were sinking in sand so deep that I gave up myself, there was no one else but him. In the midst of it all, it was just Jesus. So forget about the lights, the chairs, the aesthetic in the room and remember why we're here. Not for anyone else. We're here for him. We're here because of him. Just him. Just Jesus. Well, hey, Liverpool One Church, it is so great to have you with us for church today. And that's for every single one of you that is gathered with us in the church in person, but also for every single one of you tuning in online. We know that really you're at home with a coffee, still sat in your pyjamas, watching this on your TV in the living room, but we don't judge you. We're just glad that you're here as part of the family as we kick off week two of our current series called Just Jesus. I think that the reason why we want to start 2022 in this series is because actually what we understand is that it's possible to allow your fellowship of Jesus to end up becoming about a whole bunch of stuff that actually it's not really meant to be about. And sometimes it's just good to kind of press pause on all the busyness and all of the hustle of even things to do with like church and being involved in Christendom and just get down to some of the most important things that just Jesus spoke into all of our lives today. And I think that it's important because even as mentioning and talking about from the off the idea that we're going to speak about Jesus today, for some of you, it brings up so many different thoughts and opinions. Because there are many of you gathered in church today and Jesus to you, He is the Lord of your life. Like He is the one and only Son of the one and only God. And now you believe that because of your faith in Jesus, you have a real and authentic and accessible relationship with God our Father because you believe in Jesus. But that's not how everybody sees Jesus. Like to some people, Jesus was just a man, just a man in history, on the timeline of history. For others, he was just the son of a carpenter. For some of you, Jesus might have been a well-respected rabbi or a teacher, people that Jewish people respected 2,000 years years ago. But for others of you, you're just like unsure. Like for some of you, you just don't really believe that he's the son of God. And as far as becoming a Christian is concerned, well, you don't want to do that. And you don't want to become a Christian because you know one, you know some, and that's your main motivation to like stay away. But maybe someone's dragged you along to church and someone's forced you to watch the link online. And here you are. So today 
What I want us to try and do in this moment is just try and understand one thing about Jesus that Jesus speaks about so clearly. Before we jump into the text of um, Matthew's Gospel, which is where we're heading towards, I want to ask you a question. Have any of you ever said anything in the heat of the moment? Like, has anyone ever said something? It might have been in an argument with your wife or your husband, or maybe it was in like a tense moment around the office table. Have any of you ever said something that later you just regret? Like with all of your heart, you want to be able to take your words back, but you know that you can't. And now it's out there. And typically what we say is, oh, I didn't mean to say it, but everybody knows that that's not really true, is it? Because if it came out of you, it was in you. And if it was in you, it might have been subdued. But oftentimes what we speak is really what's going on in our heart. But have you ever said anything in the heat of the moment that you just regret? Just before Christmas, I happened to ask Emma in preparation for this message. I said, have I ever said anything that has like scarred you or hurt you? And I'm thinking like, you know, she's probably going to be able to recount a couple of things of maybe the last week or the last month or something. So I said, have I ever said anything in the heat of the moment that's like really bothered you? You know, kind of like it upset you and it made you feel a certain way. And actually, if I'm honest, when I was asking the question, I was truly hoping that she was going to say something like, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll go and have a coffee and I'll have a think. Like, I'll get back to you about that. Or I was thinking maybe she would say, you know what? I'll let you know once I've walked the dog and I've been able to like really just search through the filing cabinet of my thoughts. That's what I was hoping for. But that wasn't the response that I got. I said to her, hey, can you ever remember a time when I've maybe said something in the heat of the moment and like done it without thinking and and it's really upset you? And immediately, like instant recall, she goes, well, do you remember when we first got married? And I'm thinking, we've been married 20 years. Like how have you delved that deep into the filing cabinet of your mind to pull up an occurrence that happened 20 years ago? And I'm looking a bit shocked as if to say like, no, I have no clue about what happened 20 years ago. Well, she said, well, do you not remember the time when we just got married and I said to you, what's your favourite meal? And you said to me, it's lasagna. Do you remember that conversation? I'm going, no. And she's going, well, I'd spent all afternoon making this lasagna just for you. And like, I'd got all the ingredients and I'd made a lovely tea and I really wanted to like impress you. And I sat you down at the table and and we started to eat. And then I said to you, what do you think of the lasagna? Do you remember that question being asked? And I'm going, no. And she goes, well, I'll tell you exactly what happened. I said to you, how's the lasagna? And you said to me, it's not bad, but it doesn't taste like my mum's. And she has carried that for 20 years, scarred and scorned. And honestly, like I I was hoping that we would like not only make dinner that day, but make other things. And that was never going to happen, right? You know, when you kind of say things in the heat of the moment and things just kind of come out that you later regret. And even now she's like, I can't believe that you said that. I'm like, I have no recollection at all. But the truth is, if you're alive, then chances are at some point you'll have said something, been away around people that you love and you care for, that actually you just wish that you could go back and take back your words. In a similar way, if you've ever been around somebody that is dying, in their dying moments, they tend to recount 
what is most important to them. So perhaps if you've ever had to say goodbye to a loved one, typically people will voice things like, you know, I, I love you. Tell the family I love them. And it's almost like in their dying moments, they're wanting to let you know what is most important to them. And it's not something that you forget. In the same way that when you speak out in the heat of the moment, it's not something that you easily walk away from and forget. Sometimes we've got to look at the language and the words that Jesus spoke, because I think that some of his speech was said in such a way because he didn't want you to forget what he was saying. In fact, when we consider the speech of Jesus, in a moment, we're going to go to Matthew's gospel. It's the first in the New Testament. And we're going to go to the very end of Matthew's gospel, chapter 28. And we're going to, in essence, look at the very last and final closing words that Jesus spoke. Because I think that it's safe to assume, right? If this is the last thing that Jesus speaks, this is perhaps going to be one of the most important and intrinsic things that he wants you to know, that he wanted his disciples to know. Because Matthew's gospel, it recounts how Jesus was born of a virgin, which freaks a bunch of you out because you're like, man, I understand the science, that doesn't happen. And I know that Matthew Goss, Matthew's gospel also recounts Jesus turning the water into wine that we heard about last week. And Jesus, Matthew's gospel recounts how Jesus would travel from town to town, village to village, and he would conduct miracles. Matthew's gospel also recounts how Jesus was sold down the river by those closest to him and he was crucified on a cross so that those that would believe that he was sent by a one and only God could have everlasting life, not only through the crucifixion, but Matthew's gospel tells us about it being through the resurrection, which was when Jesus, having been killed on a cross, was brought back to life. And that right there is the reason why I'm a Christian. That's the reason why I'm in church today. The only reason why I'm in church today is not because the Bible says so. It's not because of what the Bible says. It's because all of history, not just the Bible, recounts how Jesus, having been killed, was brought back to life. And I don't know anybody else that's had that happen to. So as a result of Jesus being resurrected, I'm with him. That's why I'm a Christian. But then after the resurrection... It tells us about how Jesus, he would go and do dinner on the beach with some of his closest friends. And then he would hang out and have a bunch of meetings and he'd speak to a bunch of people that were his followers. But in Matthew 28, we get to this pinnacle moment where Jesus is about to leave planet Earth. He's about to ascend into heaven and he's gonna be found seated at the right hand of the Father, which is exactly where Jesus is today. So in Matthew 28, and not just the start of it, but the very last part, the very closing words of Matthew's account in the gospel records what Jesus said last. And I think what Jesus said last, he did so because it was most important. So this is what Matthew 28 verse 19 says. Jesus is speaking and he says, Therefore go and make disciples 
of all nations. In other words, he's saying, whatever you do, guys, don't think that this new church that we're creating is gonna be a holy huddle, a closed club for a select group of people. That's not what the local church is gonna be. We are gonna be an advancing, a wide circle of love kind of place that is gonna be including of people from all different backgrounds. Like this thing is designed to reach people for the kingdom of God. He goes on, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this. Remember, we're about to look at the very closing statement of Jesus. It's the last text in Matthew's gospel. This is the thing that's not only gonna close the chapter, but it's gonna close the book. What Jesus is about to say He wanted his followers and listeners to remember. So this is it, the most important line. He says, and be sure of this, that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So here is Jesus and he's saying, hey guys, just so you know, I'm going away for a while. I'm gonna go and be with the Father. I'm going back up into heaven. I'm going to leave planet Earth right now, but you've got to know this. I am always with you. You've got to understand something. On the days where you feel most alone, I want you to know that I'm with you. On the days that you're so fearful because you've got test results coming, I want you to know that I am going to be with you. On the day that you've got something going on between you and your kids and you've got no idea why they're being the way they are, it's upsetting to you, it's upsetting to the family, they're making train wreck decisions and you know it and you can't talk it out of them. He wants you to know, I am with you. You know, like when you've been on your own for such a long time and you're desperate for a life partner, you're like, let me find a wife, let me find a husband. God, have you got anybody for me? He wants you to know when you're feeling lonely, I'm gonna be with you. You're not alone. I am going to be with you. When you go in for the job interview, I'm gonna be with you. When you hit financial crisis and you're threatened with redundancy, I'm gonna be with you. When you're dealing with all kinds of stress and anxiety and you don't know which way life is gonna go, I want you to know that I am going to be always with you, even to the end of the age. It's the last phrase that Jesus gives us whilst he's still on the planet. It's the last thing he says, yet it's the first thing he wants you to know. I am going to be with you. You know, before I was leading a church, I was in the police. And sometimes people have asked me the question, what's the scariest thing that you've ever dealt with? And people typically, they expect you to talk about like, oh, there was this violent guy and there was this crazy thing and physically we were friends. That's not scary. That's fun and games. What was really scary for me, the most frightening incident that I've ever had to deal with was years ago when I just passed through my probation and they unleashed me on the world without the need of having a tutor working alongside me. There had been numerous calls in the middle of the night, around about 3 a.m., of a bunch of houses on this housing estate all calling in to say, I don't know what's going on in the woods, 
but there is a crazy loud noise. It just sounds like screaming. It's screeching. It's so high pitched, it's hurting our ears. It's waking up our entire household. So I get deployed to go and investigate what on earth all of this screaming and screeching is in the middle of this super scary wood. And I am like on my own, but I'm like, I'm trying to manage the tension because I'm on one hand, I'm like, I am so scared. On the other hand, I'm like, you can't be scared. You're the police. You're supposed to go into stuff like this. So I go walking through the woods and I've got nothing more than my torchlight and no one else is with me. And my task is to find out whatever it is that's making this horrifically loud noise. And at about 20 past three, I go through this wooded area and there is this fenced off area in the middle of the woods that was actually owned and ran and managed by one of the utility companies. And within the middle of this section of wood, there was this huge piece of pipework. I mean, like massive, almost the size of a house, not quite the size of a house, but it was large. And this thing was just making this horrific screaming, screeching noise. And I am thinking like, what the heck is that? And what on earth is going to happen to me? When we found out what it was, and it was actually one of the main gas pipelines, it meant that we had to implement this procedure where we had to evacuate hundreds of people off this housing estate. And my job was to make sure nobody went near the gas pipe because it's dangerous to be near this screeching, screaming gas pipe. And yet I'm the only one there and I am petrified. Like I am so scared. And then literally, right, the moment that my friend, my colleague came to join me, I became like the bravest guy on the planet. Like this was no big deal to me. This was not a problem. Like this was something that we could easily overcome. And what I recollect was how just having one more person alongside with me, alongside me whilst we're dealing with what we're going through, it almost like gave me this assuring sense of confidence. I think it was almost like what I was learning was that the presence of another person really does have power. Like you can be in the craziest, most scariest, most challenging of situations. And the moment somebody comes alongside you, because presence has power, it has this calming effect on you. And I think that that's why Jesus was saying in Matthew 28, hey guys, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're dealing with, no matter what you're trying to juggle in life, I want you to understand, I am going to be with you because my presence in your life will have power. But I guess that what we've got to ask, and it's right to do this, and if you're inquisitive like me, you should start asking questions like, is there any more evidence in Scripture that would help give support of Jesus really wanting to be alongside you in your deepest, darkest, most challenging moments? In a moment, we're going to take a look at a story that's found in John chapter 11. And it is, in essence, a story about a family, two brothers and a sister, uh, two sisters and a brother, sorry, Martha, Mary and Lazarus. And Lazarus, who actually you might have heard of if you've been to church a few times, it's a story that we preachers will often use to talk about God. But what's interesting is that in all of Scripture, he's not recorded as saying one single word. And yet his two older sisters seem to say everything for him. So there's Martha, there's Mary and there's Lazarus. And Lazarus is feeling sick. He gets unwell. And it's a big deal. And this family unit 
tries to initiate contact with Jesus because they believe that Jesus has the power to change things for Lazarus. They believe that if they can just get Jesus to be with Lazarus, then everything can change for the good. So the scripture basically talks in John 11 of their attempt to get hold of Jesus to come and be alongside Lazarus when he's sick, when he's in great need, when he has an immense health challenge. So let's jump in and take a look at John 11 and see what it says. It says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus. Let's just think about that for a minute. We're now about to look at Martha and Mary's attempt to invite Jesus to get right involved in the thick of Lazarus's nightmare. We're now about to see Martha and Mary's attempt at trying to entice Jesus to come and be with Lazarus. And what we find in the text is not what you would expect. What I would do if perhaps I were in the same situation as Martha or Mary, if I were trying to get Jesus to come and be with Lazarus, then what I would have done is maybe I would have sent word, but tried to recount to Jesus all the good things that Lazarus was about. I would have said things like, man, he's a great guy. He's just so friendly. He loves everybody. Like he's so generous with his money. He's such a hard worker. He even serves in his local church, his local synagogue. He's the guy that hands out the books. Like, you know what? He polishes everybody's hat. He's a great guy. He's just like a really good guy, Jesus. And also, just so you know, Jesus, Lazarus is our brother. That's me and Martha. And remember, we're the ones that like washed your feet with our hair with the expensive oil, not after brownie points, like not asking for recognition, but just reminding you, Jesus. It's almost like what I would have done is I would have tried to have recount all of Lazarus's good points, all of the good things about his character and about his lifestyle, almost trying to say, Jesus, here are the reasons why you should come and be with Lazarus, because he's just a great guy. And by the way, you know that we love you, right? Because we washed your hair in the expensive perfume. You, should, you owe us one, technically, Jesus. But what we find is that when the sisters send word to Jesus, they don't send word like that at all. In fact, it's just one line that's enough to get Jesus to come and be right where Lazarus is. And it's this. Lord, the one that you love is sick. The one that you love, Jesus, is sick. It's almost like they knew deeply and understood profoundly something about the very nature of Jesus that I think that we need to know too. And that was the condition for Jesus to walk alongside Lazarus was not dependent upon Lazarus's good character or any of the good deeds that he's done. It was not about Lazarus at all. It was all about Jesus's love for Lazarus. It wasn't about how much Lazarus loved Jesus. It was about how much Jesus loved Lazarus. And they were saying, look, Jesus, the one that you love is sick. Will you walk alongside him right now? Will you turn up? Will you get involved? Because he's got stuff going on. Will you be an ever-present source of help in the midst of the difficulties that he's going through in his body right now? Will you walk alongside him? 
And then we find, let's look what happens, verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew you would always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. At this moment, this is Lazarus's greatest time of need. I mean, he started off being sick, but the condition progressed and he died. And now when Lazarus needed Jesus the most, Jesus turned up at the side of Lazarus, but it was all because Jesus loved him. And it was nothing to do with the amount of love that Lazarus apportioned to Jesus. What's interesting to me though, is that that way of thinking, the way of thinking that Jesus would walk alongside us because of how much he loves us is not often how we think. And it's interesting though, because when you look through scripture, what you find is that there is a strong argument that would say, this is what the early believers all believed together. They knew that their fellowship of Jesus was all rooted in his love for them. In fact, in John's gospel, he even recounts the fact and he gives himself a name. He calls himself John the Beloved, almost like John, the one that is the favourite. I am John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I am John, the one that Jesus loved the most. And whenever I've heard people speak on this subject, and whenever I've read through that text, I've always thought to myself that this is almost like a bit of a game of one-upmanship. This is perhaps John trying to get one over on everybody else. Like, hey, see, Peter, James, Matthew, hey, I'm the one that Jesus loves the most, right? Because John believed that he was Jesus's favourite. There was something about the way John believed his relationship with Jesus caused him to think not that he was loved, so this is me attempting self-promotion or self-elevation. There was just something that he knew about the way in which Jesus loved him that actually was nothing to do with him at all. It was all and solely dependent on Jesus and the way that he would love him. It's almost like he knew deeply and understood profoundly that he was incredibly loved by Jesus. He thought that he was the favourite. And you know what? I think that there is something strangely healthy about having that perception towards Jesus. Because like if you were to just stop and take a moment and think, imagine how much it would change your entire prayer life if every time you prayed, you'd convinced yourself that you were the favourite, that you are the one that was most loved by God. Imagine how much it would change the way that you would pray if you believed with all of your heart that you absolutely are the apple of his eye. How much would it change the way that you believe, right? If you would fully understood that you are the source of his 
obsession, like He's fixated on you. You are the apple of His eye. Can you imagine for a moment how much it would change the way that you would pray? Because if you're anything like me, do you pray at times in such a way that you kind of don't understand who you are to God? Almost like every time you pray and maybe you're in need, maybe you need God to turn up in your life, to walk alongside you in the challenges that you face. Do you ever almost pray with this idea of like, God, I'm gonna remind you of all the ways that I've loved you and demonstrated my faithfulness towards you first. Like we say, like, God, we're, we're so grateful that you're good. And God, I, I love it that I get to serve in your church. I even wear a red t-shirt. I even do a thing on tech team. God, I'm so grateful that I have the opportunity to like do all of these things for you. And God, I've read my Bible daily reading plan on the YouVersion Bible app for 11 days now. I mean, surely that would equal you being involved, right? God, I've, I've not swore for six days. God, I've been well behaved in wherever. God, I've stopped doing the thing now. And what we try and do is we start to almost try and engage Jesus on the premise of, look what I've done. Look what I've achieved. Look what I've accomplished. Look how much I love you, Jesus. Surely now, right? Surely you'd be willing to love me in return and now come alongside me and walk with me. I mean, just think about that for a moment. Because actually, when you think about how that would revolutionise your prayer life, we start to understand that that's exactly how the early followers of Jesus all saw their relationship with Him. And we know that because perhaps the most famous portion of Scripture is found also in John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 16. And it just says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, so that He that would believe in Him shall not die, but have everlasting life. And notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't talk about that God gave His one and only Son because of how much we love Him. It doesn't talk about how God created this massive rescue mission to come to planet Earth so that those who have been good enough, achieved enough, accomplished enough, demonstrated our commitment to Him enough, that that would warrant God sending Jesus. It just says, for God so loved the world, that's you by the way, that He gave His one and only Son. In other words, it's not about how much you love God. It's not about how much you can do for God. Your fellowship of Jesus is not about your achievements and your accomplishments, because if it were, that creates a huge problem. And the problem is, is that if you follow Jesus like that, then what you'll start to believe is that Jesus will only be with you when you're good or when you're holy enough or when you've been good enough for a long enough period of time, you'll start to think maybe Jesus will be with me now you'll start to embrace this mentality of almost like having a gold star chart with the Saviour, where it's kind of like, here's a gold star. Can I remind you how good I've been? Now will you walk with me? Now will you get involved in my health thing? Now will you get involved in my career, God? Because I've been good. I've earned it. Like, look how faithful I've been. I've come to church now for 11 Sundays on the bounce and I've not missed one yet. Like, God, how good have I been? And yet this isn't the foundation of these early followers' uh, faith in Jesus was based and rooted in. They all just understood like, man, I, I'm His favourite. I'm a child of the King Most High. Like, I, I'm loved by Him. I, I'm the object of His obsession. 
So now when you pray, pray like God, it's your favourite again. (laughs) And I'm £250 short of the mortgage or the rent this month. But I'm the one that you love. Would you help me out? Now we start to pray like God, I who's your favourite? I am the one that you are consumed about. I'm the apple of your eye. And God, you know how worried I am about what I've got going on in my health right now. So would you walk with me? Because I could really need some of your presence to bring power into my life. It changes the way we pray. Now we start to say, God, I'm the one that you love the most, Father. So would you help me in work? Would you help me deal with this? Would you walk alongside me? Because I'm the one that you love because I'm the favourite. I'm the one that you've called. I'm the one that you've chosen. I'm the one that couldn't run away from you even if I tried. I am the one that even on my worst day, you still love me. And there's nothing that I could ever do that would ever separate from your willingness to love me. And now my fellowship of you is not rooted or grounded in the way that I love you because you've already loved me way too much, way enough to compensate for all of that. That is the one thing that I think Jesus would want us to understand when we start to ask Him to walk alongside us. He wants you to know that I'm gonna be with you even to the end of the age and there's nothing that you can do to stop it. There's nothing that you have to do to earn it. There's nothing that you need to do, achieve or accomplish to demand it or command it. I am gonna be with you until the end of the age. Why? Because I love you. So now, when you think about how you pray, if you feel alone in life, take confidence that Jesus is gonna walk with you. Now, if you're dealing with health things going on in your life, and you just don't know which way this is gonna go, like, God, what am I gonna do about this? Like, I've got a family, like, take confidence. You're His favourite. And you're not going anywhere on your own. He's gonna walk alongside you. So now when you're trying to make all the numbers work in Excel, I want you to know you can have confidence that you are the object of His obsession and you don't have to figure anything out on your own. He's gonna be alongside you. He's gonna walk with you. His presence is gonna bring power to your life. Now when you're applying for the mortgage, now when you sit in the exam, now when you're going for the interview, now when you're dealing with your children, now when you're dealing with an ill parent, I want you to know that wherever you go, I am going to be with you, even until the end of the age. Because it's not about the way you love Him. It always has been, is right now, and always will be about the way that He loves you. That's why Jesus said the last thing before He went to be with the Father, gonna be with you even until the end of the age. Thanks for joining us today. We hope that you can take that message and apply it to your life. Also, don't forget to take a moment to subscribe, rate and review this podcast. To get connected or stay more connected to the life of Liverpool One Church and learn how you can join us live, visit liverpoolonechurch.com. Thanks again for joining us and we hope to see you again soon.